Welcome back to the Knox Check-In, the podcast of health studies at Knox College. I'm Jonah Rubin. Today on the pod, we're going to be hearing an interview that Lois Love Watchy, Adam Ryan, and George Hernandez did with Dr. Carl Strock, a doctor of geriatric medicine affiliated with Cottage Hospital here in town. As both a hospital physician and a doctor specializing in geriatric medicine, Dr. Strock is doubly on the front lines of those confronting the COVID pandemic in our current times. So Lois Love, Adam, George, take us away. So I'm, I'm a neuroscience major. I'm a senior uh, and a pre-med student. I'm, I'm Adam, by the way, Adam Ryan. Hi, I'm Lois Love. I'm a senior majoring in biology, hoping to go to medical school in a year or two. And I'm George. I'm also a senior majoring in neuroscience and also hoping to go to medical school within like a year. Yeah, the pandemic throws things off. Everybody applying, getting things done to get to med school next year. It was kind of screwy. Yeah, I think a lot of us are thinking of taking a gap year to just study for the MCAT and then apply (laughs) next year. Makes sense. Well, um, now that we've introduced ourselves, uh, why don't you give a little short introduction, uh, what you do, how long you've been practicing, where you went to school, that kind of thing. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a native of Canton, Illinois, down the road a few miles. Um, my undergrad at Purdue and went to medical school at U of I in Peoria, graduated in 79. Um, I did my internship residency in Grand Rapids, Michigan, internal medicine. I've been here since 82, so it's been 38 and a half years now here in town, in general internal medicine. Um, I'm board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and hospice and palliative medicine. And I basically just do office and nursing home work, and now I give up hospital work. And it's just mostly geriatrics and diabetes, high blood pressure, coughs and colds, and all the things you general stuff a doctor does. I don't do surgery. I don't do orthopedics. I don't do little babies. So general adult medicine. And so you said you've been practicing for how long again? I think I missed it. It's 1982. So 38 and a half years right now. I'll be 39 this summer. Uh, what made you pursue, pursue a career in medicine? <laughs> Very good question. Um, I had no plans to do that. I was a math major in college. After my uh, first year of college, I said, what can a math major do? So you can be an actuary, you can be a teacher, I guess. It would appeal to me. My dad was a doctor, and I guess, in the back of my mind, when I considered medical school, so I took chemistry class, biology classes, and my electives, and I go to med school. It was sort of, I guess, like back of my mind, my growing up with it, but it appealed to me, I guess, until I got to college and decided what I really want to do with my life. That's a very interesting That's story. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's one so thing about med school. You don't have to be a, a science major or anything like that. I mean, I was a math major. I guys in my class who were engineers. We had a guy who was a professor of linguistics at Eastern who um, decided to go to medical school and become a neurologist. And, you know, a nice mixed bag of things. As long as you have the basics in biology, mostly chemistry, really, and um, a little bit of physics. Those are the main things you have to do to get into school. And um, the biggest thing coming as a math major, I think, was that I had a little background in biology. I take biochemistry course, it would save me my first year. But the guys in my class in Peoria had 
We got a PhD in physiology. One guy was a podiatrist with a PhD in anatomy. A lot of these guys fail through the first couple of years easily because they had a big background in it. Guys like me with no background were really working hard to keep up with things. What made you uh, specialize into gerontology? Well, it's kind of by I me. Mean, when I when I when I came to town, um, in practice, I joined an older physician after a year, and he had an older practice. And I'm not fellowship trained. I had grandfathered the geriatrics. I just when I was in school, when I was retired. Geriatrics was even a specialty. I grandfathered it and took the boards. And as I got older, my patients have gotten older with me. Um, I enjoy taking care of older people. They have a unique set of problems. And um, it just kind of fell into my lab just by the nature of the practice I had. Was there like a specific reason why you decided to choose older people to work with? Not really. It was just the, the, the patient population at the time, the clientele that I was seeing. But I do enjoy it. Part of what I like about trivial medicine is you see the long-term relationship with patients. I've got you know, I've got three or four generations of families. Um, I've had you know, some people patients for 30, 35 years. They tell them we're all growing old together. When I first started in their 40s, now they're in their 80s maybe. And, you know, you grow with them, you learn about their problems, their families, things that they go through. And I think it's part of what I like about primary care is that you have connections with the patients that you keep for a long, long time. You mentioned that it, it kind of just like fell in your lap uh, and <laughs> that's, you kind of just went with it. But uh, and Galesburg is a place where there is like a lot of older people. So is, is that like a reason you decided to uh, work in Galesburg or did you have like other options and you just felt like Galesburg was uh, the better option? When I was a fourth year medical student, I had a rotation family practice in Galesburg. Did like family practice like Galesburg. My wife's from Pekin and I'm from Canton. Both have family pretty much 50 miles away from here. I had gone to med school to the Illinois Egg Association program. I had to practice five years downstate anyway. Um, I like the people I knew here. When I was in high school, Galesburg was our our big athletic rivals who killed us every year in sports. I knew the community somewhat. And really, it was just the only place to really look. I had done my rotation family practice at Cottage. I just wrote the Cottage people a letter. Are you interested? They said, yeah, they said, I got to retire. Um, so we came here, looked around, and got seven practice and never looked back. I mean, the appeal to the community was it was a Size town I like it was a little bit bigger than Canton, a little bigger than Pekin. Like the schools here at the time, that time, um, Admiral was, or Maytag was thriving within Admiral. Um, the factories were doing well. Um, outside of OMC, I just left town. Things are going pretty good here, it seemed like. And kind of, at least I saw a bright future, which I still think it does. But you like everything about it, the location, the people we met, and Settled in here and has been home for almost 40 years now. So you mentioned your wife there. Um, did you meet her while you were in med school or was that afterwards? Well, in med school, I was doing my P's rotation. I couldn't stand pediatrics. I met her over a spinal tap. Um, and she worked pediatrics both 
in Peoria, and then went to Grand Rapids. She worked pediatrics in Grand Rapids also. Um, our son was born my last year of residency, and she stopped working then. We came here. Um, she worked at our church for a while doing some things, but um, our daughter was born in 84, so she's kind of a stay-at-home mom most of the time, so we're in our church for a few years. Hmm. Was it difficult... Was it difficult managing uh, like work and home life at the same time, especially really just finishing was. residency? Well, as a resident, was too bad. And I thought being a resident was across the street from the hospital. Um, you know, our son was born. It was my last year residency. So he was about five months old when he moved here. And where I was, it really was a pretty relaxed program. We had plenty of time off. Our costs were reasonable. wasn't too bad. Moved to Galesburg. We bought a house four blocks from my office where we still live. I can get back and forth in about a minute. Um, I would come home for lunch. I'd see my kids at lunch when they were younger. Um, I was able to coach my son's little league teams and t-ball teams and soccer and things like that. And I always found time for those things. Wow, that's really good. Four blocks, that's not hard at all between home yeah. and work. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, my, my, my commute literally is about a minute, minute and a half, roughly. And that's, that's the dream. I like. So, I mean, we, we were also going to ask a follow-up, but I think you kind of already answered it, but I'll, I'll still give you the question. Um, has your family made an impact on your career in any way? Well, I've been very supportive, I think, is the biggest thing. I mean, it was, I mean, my wife gave up a lot. She had her nursing work to still take care of the kids. My kids were understanding when I wasn't around at times, although there's this like Christmas mornings when I go to the hospital, take rounds, bring the presents up. Well, so we get crack a dawn open presents up, but um, they they understood. I mean, even one of my kids went into medicine or healthcare. They didn't want to do with it. One of them said, "You put your finger where?" Um, but yeah, they're very supportive, and yeah, I don't think I could have done it without it. It's really good to hear. Um, kind of flipping on the opposite side, what was most challenging about pursuing your career? The most challenging initially was the academics. I mean, I had to get caught up in college taking biology and chemistry courses. Med school itself had some setbacks and bubble through all those. And that was the only thing I got to Galesburg. I think things kind of settled down once you passed your board. And I was like, I was one of the last groups of people until med school boarded for life. Now it's every 10 years, but um, my boards were lifetime. Now the other ones were every 10 years that I've been recertified in. Um, being here in town, I, mean, I was on a school board here 15 and a half years. I had partners to cover me when I had nice had meetings that were going on, another board of health for eight years. And I've enjoyed those types of things and um, really found the pitfalls to very, very few. How did you deal with the ups and downs while in medical school? Well, most well, I mean, it's easy answers. We drank a lot on weekends because we did. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we worked hard during the weeks on weekends. We party. That's the bottom line about it. I'm not going to gonna lie about that um <laughs> most was having you know i met my wife into my third year and that was your med school she was around with somebody i could always talk to stuff i had a good roommate in med school we bounced these off each other i had you know we only had 45 of my class in peoria so we were all close to each other and and that was helpful too there was a strong support group there among your your peers to help with things we're all in the same boat pretty much that was very helpful you know, the U of, U of I at that time, it's your first year in Champaign or Chicago. I had my first year in Champaign. And next, you could be Peoria Rock or Chicago. 
Um, now they have four-year schools at all the places, including Champaign, where they have, I think, a school of birth engineering also. Um, I think it was the smallest of the class, the support we had. Um, you know, I was a few hours, 30 minutes from home. I could go home if I needed to and get away from things. So that helped also. Do you think if you had gone to um, an urban, a school in like a city, would that have been different for you? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I grew up in a small town. I mean, my, I went to college at mm-hmm. Purdue. I mean, the campus was big. The town itself wasn't that much big, that much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to Chicago even now. I can handle it for a few days, but, you know, the traffic, the crowds and everything is just what I don't want to do. Our son lived out in New Jersey, New York for about a few years. You go out there to visit him, and um, I'm not a big city person. Also, I would have gone to Wrigley Field and Bears games and Bulls games and probably flunked out for that reason. He's spending too much time at sporting events. Uh, yeah, the career school, I like the career school. It was small, it was personal. The other thing, too, is that in the universities, when you're doing things as a student, it's a big place you've got interns, residents, fellows, people around. In Peoria, just us and the residents, so that was it. When I did my junior medicine rotation in Peoria out of Proctor, um, we had two third-year students and one I put this intern from Methodist, and he took a week of vacation. So the two third-year students were basically running the the service, and mm-hmm. our attending was had an office downtown here, not near Proctor, and I got a lot. We did a lot that way, kind of like trial by fire, because we were around to bail us out. Maybe we stayed with to solve the problem. We had to figure it out by ourselves. So that was really pretty good. I'm not sure if you had experience in the big city where you've got a lot of layers between you and the patient. Yeah, I think I can definitely get behind um, drinking on the weekends during med school. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I had done a little bit of research on you, and I found an article about you a couple of years ago where uh, you were talking about the legal, uh, how medical marijuana was legalized. And I was wondering kind of now if that has changed because you had said you were kind of hesitant on prescribing it because it was still illegal federally. And I was kind of wondering if that had changed at all now that it's more um, it's legal for recreational use and more states are opening up for that. Because I did see that you had talked about how some of your older patients were inquiring about that. And there's a dispensary in town. I was wondering if uh, that at all affected like your prescriptions. Well, I had a few people wanted, I had a lot of paperwork for them to do. It's still a class one drug under federal law, which may change one of these days. Um, Congress is talking about, about doing that. Um, I, I guess my, my take is the medical literature just doesn't have a lot of hardcore data and control studies to support the use of medical marijuana. So this idea that came to the studies, that's a schedule one drug. Um, hey, I think patients have tried it. Some say it helps, some say it doesn't. Before the medical marijuana illness was legalized, patients who would, um, get it on the street and some got released, some didn't. Some would go on the recreational route, which is more expensive than having the medical card. You know, CBD oil, some say it helps, some say it doesn't. Um, yeah, I think it's still kind of a mixed bag. I think the jury's still out on it. I think until we get some real good controlled studies someday down the road, that's going to be a, a questionable answer as to how effective it really is. Um, they've got the one product that was approved for seizures in children that I think was, you know, effective that's available. I'll tell you, when I was an intern, we're talking back in 79, 80, fall of 79, I was in oncology service. We had a 
young kid with eventually colon cancer who was getting chemotherapy and he was you know, smoking pot in his hospital room, you know, 40, 42 years ago because of nausea and everything. I smoked for a long time. It has some good antiemetic properties and he was getting chemotherapy and I think it was probably used for it there. Um, again, the problem is not the obviously insurance is going to pay for it and the hospitals I work with won't cover because it's not an FDA approved medication. So people pay out of pocket for it, they can have that option. Um, and I think it's good for something. I think the jury's still out. You still have um, a couple of prescription drugs around for years that advertise stimulants that are cannabis related too. Uh, Marinol is one thing, the other one is offhand. Um, but I think it's just to take time until we really get the state to see how effective it really is and how much is the placebo effect. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm doing my senior research on an antagonist of the CB receptors in C. Okay. elegans. So I thought it would, uh, I'd just throw that question in there since oh. I saw you, you had spoken on it earlier. No problem. And that's in my whole decade of 70s in college. I mean, everybody I knew was was smoking a lot. I, I tried a few times, never liked, never could inhale. Um, and my med school classmates who were heavy users of it, they became radiologists because I was in a dark room all day, I guess. But you know, I, I grew up around this stuff in college and everything. I know it's showing me out there. And, you know, so this is showing question the long-term harm of it, too, as far as um, neurologic and maybe psychiatric issues. And I think that's the problem where you need really good, rigorous studies we're just not going to get until the FDA government drops the class one restriction on it, which I'm okay with right now because it is going to be used in a lot of states anyway. Yeah, um, kind of shifting to more current times. You work with uh, like homes, correct? Um, and that's kind of been a big target for a lot of problems with COVID. And I was wondering uh, if you have any kind of insight into how nursing homes are doing during the pandemic. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been an up and down bath for nurses. I did a lot of my visits by FaceTime or doing medicine facilities for a long time, like kick and scream to get into them. It was strange. Some I know probably were getting into, some I couldn't get to at all. Some required a COVID test to get in. Um, it was really a mixed bag. I know they have, they have all their, they all have decreased admissions right now, or decreased census because they're not taking residence because of COVID. To me, the biggest issue has been family members not seeing their, their their loved ones. I think it's just been a disaster in that regard. People dying without their family around them. Um, I think that's appalling myself. I think they've been a little strict at times, but they're following the guidelines given to them by their, their regulatory bodies and they're stuck with doing, which I think it is unfortunate, but that's just the way it is, I'm afraid. Um, the grandma vaccinated now, which I think is helpful. Um, I got into something I've been into for a while finally by kicking and screaming. So I've been vaccinated. I've had my immunization. I should be immune. Your residents have had, they should be immune. Um, we wear a mask, shouldn't be a problem. And they grudgingly let me into some of them finally. I think the biggest thing is the lack of family involvement, family to see your family members and people literally dying alone. Yeah, that's something I don't often hear about is kind of the, the mental impact of being isolated. Do you think that is going to have an effect even after we're done with the pandemic? I think so. They, they've had, they found that people's dementia were getting worsened because of 
because of COVID, because of lack of contact, lack of social contact, is you're locked in their rooms literally for weeks. I mean, the meal's into them, they can't go out, and they're just stuck in that same setting all the time. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think, you know, prisoners and death row get outside for an hour a day. These people get outside for nothing at all. And I think it was just really, really terrible the way things happened there. I sort of understand the rationale. Initially, as time went on, I, I had less and less understood it. And one of my patients who died, and her daughter said, I sat in this room for two days in the wintertime, bundled up with a blanket. She could just be close to her mother as she died. Another guy I know is retired, applied for a job in food service. as wife's well, nursing was going to have a chance to see her. I mean, it's just things like that that I think frustrated everybody. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've heard um, some stuff in the news that even if you get vaccinated, you still have to like socially distance and keep your mask on. To me, that I was always a little weirded out by that because it made me think, well, does the vaccine not work? Do you have any insight well, no. on that? You can still be a carrier. So that's the problem. You can have the COVID and have no symptoms. You the antibodies. You can still be carrying the virus. And that's the problem right now to get more herd immunity. Mm, okay. So you can still be a spreader. You just won't con- contract yeah, exactly. the disease yeah. yourself. Right. Okay. Right. All I'll say now, if you've had your vaccines, your friends have your other vaccines, you can have small groups of people um, without masks and things like that. Are you guys immunized on campus at all? Are they, are they getting students at all yet? Or are you guys still in the last group to get it? Yeah, we're, we're pretty good on the other end of that. I don't think we're going to be getting it for a while, which, I mean, makes sense because everyone's young. Yeah, we get tested yeah. every other week, but, yeah, no, no vaccines for us. Yeah. Well, and I was at my rodeo today, the health department administrator talked, and whatever reason, K-12 through educators who gave the vaccine, if somebody asked, you know, why are college professors not getting it? Why are they not in the loop? And as you know, the answer that the government came down with K through 12. You know, so Sandberg and Knox faculty members, or they have other health problems, or if they're ineligible, it doesn't make a lot of sense either because they're, you know, around people and guys your age can carry it, not have it, and have those symptoms. And, you know, it's just kind of crazy that the faculty of a college can't get on the priority list for immunizations. Yeah, it definitely makes sense that just at least the educators should get vaccinated. Right. I know you mentioned um, working in hospice and palliative care. How would you say that has changed or shifted in terms of, um, I think it's like making patients comfortable before they pass, I should say. Like, how has that changed from how it used to be until COVID? Well, I think that with COVID, well, the hospice, which is why I'm affiliated, hospice can pass this, has seen our numbers drop significantly with COVID because they can't get into the facilities where people need the services. Nursing homes wouldn't let our staff in to evaluate patients and get admitted to hospice. People who have been from hospice services um, wouldn't get them because of COVID. That's why the biggest thing is problem for all the hospices, really, is that restriction to the facilities has been so limited. Um, over the years, I've been, I've been involved in hospice since 1992, I believe, and over the years it's become, there's going to be a lot of questions about it being much more used, people understanding we're not going to live forever, and that the um, comfort measures that hospice gives is really to stay at home and be in your own environment 
is something a lot of people like. Uh, most people want to die at home, not in a hospital, not in a nursing home, all that, over many people. I think hospital allows them to stay in their normal environment for longer periods of time and to be and as pain-free as possible. The biggest issue with COVID has been, I think, the lack of access to nursing homes used to have patients who would be admitted services at the end. We just can't get in to see them now. Would you say um, hospice care or being in a hospice care kind of helps patients and their families grieve? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it does. I think the hospice benefits. I mean, hospice has um, social workers, clergy, nurses, nurses' aides, grief counselors, volunteers if patients need them. Um, after a patient dies, the family gets grief counseling 13 months afterwards if they need it. You know, a lot of good things out there about it. Um, when I was a resident, hospice was totally unknown in this country, pretty much. Um, it started kicking up about the early to mid-90s. We got the first one here in 92, as I said. And I think it's made a big difference a lot of people's lives and a lot of family members also. Um, from that standpoint, I think it's very beneficial. It's now they now fellowships in hospitality and medicine, uh, which I think are picking up steam. Though there's still a need for a lot more than we have. You're probably doing a lot of stuff uh, remotely in terms of care. What's your opinion of like telemedicine? The problem with telemedicine is you can't examine the patient. You know, if they're depressed or psychiatric issue, that's fine. If a rash you want to look at, that's fine. But you know, you can't hear their heart. You can't hear their lungs. I had one patient a few months back who they had telehealth visit with. He's afraid to come to the office and, oh, I'm short of breath. My ankles were swollen. My heart's been fast. I need to come in. I'm not coming anywhere. I afraid to leave the house. The next day, her son calls. She's short of breath. Her oxygen level's down. So it's the ER. She's in heart failure and her heart's very fast and she really needed to be seen in person because you just couldn't evaluate that on a Telehealth visit. Yeah, I think you know that's a big issue I have with these. Somebody can't get the examination now. If technology improves to the point where they can have the patient at home with some kind of device, you can hear their heart and lungs, and which I think is coming out. That makes things a lot easier. Some people have blood pressure stuff at home. We get the blood pressure for you, but you're missing a lot of the stuff you really need to have to do a a decent office visit. You know, I, do we do telehealth? We do some telehealth. Yeah, not a lot. Not doing much anymore now. Then, like nursing homes, somebody here, the nurse can see what's going on with the patient and um, things like that. Yeah, I bet it could get kind of frustrating not being able to like examine them face to face. Is there any times that like you just felt over overwhelmed with all this? No, never did. Um, the biggest thing was that when the pandemic first started, people were canceling appointments. They actually cut our office hours down to two days a week, which I thought was kind of silly because people wanted to come in and every couple of months of that, they realized that managers are people to be seen. So they opened the office back up and been busy ever since. We never overwhelmed. But, you know, I was lucky in my practice, I haven't seen a lot of COVID. Even the hospitals, I think same reason more than cottage, you did, but a lot of your sick people got, got transferred out to, Peoria, the bigger cities where they needed more specialized care. I mean, the healthcare service here was never really 
totally overwhelmed. Is not what I saw. That's good to hear. I also saw somewhere, so I don't know how accurate it is, but it said that um, you were fluent in both English and Spanish. Is, is that true? Not me. Not okay. me, no. <laughs> no, no. Okay, because I was just wondering uh, if you were, how useful that would be in a place yeah. like Galesburg. But yeah, that's why I was skeptical of it, so I thought I'd ask. Yeah. But similar, that would be kind nice. of often. I, I took Russian many years ago, but even that was back in college. So I, uh, I lost most of that, even though Spanish, no. Is there any times where like cultural differences uh, happen or you just have to like, so in a hospice or something like that, uh, like different uh, processes of death, like grieving and stuff? Is there any times you like encounter stuff like that? Um, I really have it myself. Our grief team may have. Um, I was not sure about that. Now, there are also the cultural differences. You know, when you study for the board, they talk about African-American communities and Asian communities and how they, you know, tend to respond to some patients' diagnoses and, um, and death and things like that, different religious differences. But, but, you know, we're pretty homogeneous here in Galesburg, so it's not been a big issue around here that I've seen. This is just something I um, thought of. Because with Galesburg being so small, if something major happens to a patient or something, do they just rush them in an ambulance to a, like a major hospital? Or do they like fly them out? Like how does that whole process work? It depends on the severity of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's having a heart attack and they need to be have a stomach done right away to make it the helicopter and fly them over. Sometimes with the ambulance takes 45 minutes to get to Peoria and the helicopter will take that long to get here and get back anyway. So sometimes the damage is just as easy. But thing, you know, we don't do neurosurgery here. We don't do open heart type stuff here, cardiac procedures. Uh, most other things, you know, can be done here in town. Uh, major trauma might go to Peoria also. Uh, burns will go to Springfield. That's where the burn center is. Uh, most of it goes to Peoria right now is so much cardiac or neurologic as far as emergency type things. I've got a question regarding like your older patients. Um, do you ever have patients that you know that they're coming in, but they just like to maybe be seen by a doctor in a way? Like, I don't know how to explain it, but you'd have a patient that just every time she comes in, she's just complaining that somewhere hurts. And maybe you guys always like give her a certain prescription or something to help with it. But she occasionally comes in. How would you guys like deal with that? Is there like something special you do to make them feel better or? Well, I love just talking with them. I have, I used to have patients mm-hmm. who say the only time they lay that out of the house was to come see me every three months. Um, and you just try to maybe, you know, not to get a prescription every time, but try to mm-hmm. having ways to deal with it. Um, sometimes they're just depressed or lonely with me to talk to. Mm-hmm. Try to get involved in activities. We've got the Gordon Barron sitting here in town that old people can go to. They try to get involved with some meals program that DNA has when they go off to lunch. They can get there and Probably I need to social isolation people have sometimes when they get older. So I had to come out just to have something to do. Kind of a question more on the broad pandemic. Do you think we have to reach a level of herd immunity or just have the people who are most vulnerable to the disease vaccinated? Well, the, the stock answer is herd immunity, but I'm hopeful that once enough people get vaccinated, and the high-risk groups will be much better off. I know like kids and every kids may get it, they're not going to be that, that, that bad. If they're carrying it to vaccinated people, they should be okay. So I'm hopeful that if they were vaccinated, it will be all right. But the health department director, they said a new season, I think it would be November till we get 
the vaccination delivery we want to have here in the county was surprising you that long because if the Johnson & Johnson is available in the March, I would think we can have all the vaccines out. She'll get anybody immunized who wants it, but I had patients who won't take it. I had people who take it. They were afraid to take it. They want to take it. And I saw some people with COVID deniers also. It was a political thing. It was made up. And, you know, you can't argue with it, so you just drop the subject. Yeah. How to, kind of probing deeper into that, how do you think we get people who are kind of wary of the vaccine or um, suspicious of COVID in general to to get immunized? I think it'd be hard to do with a lot of money. It's a matter of trying to show them the science that's there. I think having, like he's saying, like celebrities and athletes and politicians get it done, they let them know it's a safe vaccine and it's not going to hurt them. Um, you know, people have had with a second shot, they had some discomfort from time to time, but nothing I've seen is very major. It's just a mostly a sore arm or maybe a fever for a day or two. Um, but yeah, I think people die of the COVID, die of COVID. So I think that probably the vaccine's a lot safer than the disease itself. You try and press it on them, but some people just don't want to buy it. Um, another kind of question, because we're all pre-med students, is do you have any advice for um, people like us pursuing a career in medicine? It's changed a lot over the last 40 years, and it's changed a lot more in the next 40, I think. Um, I think the whole healthcare system is in a state of flux right now. Um, the economics of healthcare is truly an issue. Technology of it is advancing rapidly. Um, I mean, a lot of changes going on at very, very at many levels. Um, you know, we need everybody needs to have healthcare coverage. That's still a big issue. When Obamacare was passed, I had people had insurance before we could get tests done. They were able to get done before because of cost. Um, I think that, you know, that's probably the big. I have a lady right now who's got a blood problem, she's a hematologist, she works part-time as well as the insurance, has huge out-of-pockets, and doesn't want to see the doctor, and I told her, looking to see somebody, there's ways to get things paid for, you have to work on that, but I think something needs to be done to resolve so everybody has health care and access to the system. Um, I think those people those things are going to have issues going on because of the whole economics of it all, to pay for it raising taxes, things like that are going to be a problem with people, but you know, I think it's a lot of change in that regard. Technology certainly my stethoscope will be obsolete in a few years. Maybe we'll have a handheld Doppler unit of some kind or electronic stethoscope that will cure things much better than we ever have with our current equipment. Um, my, my concern is that as you get more technology oriented, the page becomes secondary. Um, Right now, it's computer electronic medical records. If your residents spend most of their time on the computer not seeing patients, especially in the office, the physician time with patients is less because of the computer. And the interactions with the patient are suffering because of technology. I mean, I think it's important when the computer's in the room to remember the patient that they're first, talk to them, look at them, and not focus on just typing your note in all the time because um, you want to get things done. Um, I know the problem has been too, is it's been a lot of time on you know, nights and weekends getting things caught up. It leads to more burnout, it leads to a early retirement, it leads to the shortage of physicians. It's kind of a big catch 22 type situation where you need to find some kind of happy medium for everybody all along. 
Yeah, I, we always hear about a shortage of doctors in the United States. Uh, what do you think's a way to fix that? Well, you know, it's, it's a complex problem. It keeps opening more medical schools. The problem is the number of residency programs and slots are staying the same. So there are guys these medical school can't get residency anywhere. Um, the, the government used to fund more residency slots to start with, I think, especially in primary care, and you need primary care more attractive. Um, like it or not, an orthopedic surgeon come out of residency to start at 400000 a year, compared to a family practitioner in film medicine, start at one fifty one seventy five a year. So for two more years of training, you double the starting income, and over years of practice, you make twice as much all along. It makes primary care more attractive, makes specialties maybe a little less attractive, and more primary care slots, and encourage people to go into primary care to do loan loan um, repayment or forgiveness, financial burden of some kind. Um, but the big thing right now is the residency slots that people can fill, and that's up to the feds to fund that because that's where the hospitals get paid for. If these medical school can't get a residency, you can't do much, you can't get a license, you've had you know, some postgraduate training. So there's kind of an artificial cap on primary care physicians. Yeah. And it's really from a governmental standpoint because of the lack of funding for residencies. Everyone talks often about, you know, different ways of solving healthcare costs. Why I've never heard that before. Why do you think that hasn't been discussed? I don't know. It really should be. Um, you know, the issue with healthcare costs is again really, really complicated. Right now, we have payments. If a patient receives me, Medicare pays one thing. Private insurance pays another. Medicaid pays another. Um, pays no insurance. Pays the most. They don't pay at all generally, oftentimes. So, everything at discount are paying nothing. The problem with Medicare for all is you have to increase Medicare reimbursement. Because right now, hospitals lose money on Medicare patients. They make their profit on commercial insurance, which in Galesburg is in a lot of, which complicates national hospitals here in town. Um, you need to have a happy medium somewhere where you're paying more than Medicare pays now. Probably the commercial insurance pays now to make sure hospitals can stay solved. But as you'll see, lots of hospitals closing and physician practice closing up too. I know with COVID, a lot of doctors' practices were practicing at a thin margin anyway, as far as your overhead. And when they had their um, number of office visits cut by by half or whatever, a lot of just really couldn't make it. Everybody doctors taking out the retirement fund to pay their staff or um, practices closing up entirely because they couldn't afford things. You've got to really be careful how things are done with a Medicare for all type plan and need to have, make sure that. Reimbursement shared to all the parties. I think people won't be able to problems. You drop commercial insurance that people are all paying a lot for and funnel that money into Medicare or so whatever you want to call it. That should help some, but it needs very careful done in order to keep the whole system from falling apart entirely. Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of the workers um, at Knox, like specifically in the cafeteria, and they say that it's incredibly expensive uh, to see a doctor in Galesburg especially through, I, I don't know what they're using, but they one of them had, uh, like I think, a leg operation or something like that, just because there's not many different hospitals here. Is there is there truth to that? Well, I, I think the truth is that most of the prices are set by insurance companies. 
they said what they said what you can charge. Like I can charge a patient a thousand bucks for a visit. Medicare pays sixty bucks risk is written off. A lot of the hospital charges are written off because insurance doesn't cover it. Most people who pay full price those with no insurance. Everybody else has somebody taking the deal for them to get the price down. And really, only get healthcare costs. I mean, when you go to the big cities, you'll find they're a lot higher than we are. Um, but the bottom line is, the insurance companies really set the reimbursement rate and set the charges. At least what they're going to pay. I mean, I mm-hmm. people. Know, I mean, I had surgery in Methodist, um, 2006, uh, for a broken arm. The bill came out for fifty thousand bucks. Insurance paid six thousand. It's got written off. So the charges and the actual payment of pockets like that are really two different things. Um, I'm not sure not insurance has what they have, but if they have any yes. Deductibles and co-pays may be there, but the overall charges of things are pretty much set by the insurance companies and what they're going to pay and reimburse. Well, kind of shifting gears, um, maybe a little bit less serious. Do you have any fun or interesting stories uh, from your career or from medical school or just in general? Not give offhand, really, in all honesty. I mean, it was, you know, every patient is kind of its own interesting story in itself in some ways. You see interesting cases now and then. Um, not a lot of exotic ones around here. I was, I was a fourth year medical student. I saw four or seven years when I saw in Peoria as far as some interesting things. But that's nothing really weird in my career, I don't think. Um, you know, nothing really, I guess, really off the wall type stuff either. So I guess I'd say offhand, I can't think of anything. I'll try to keep my mind back in my brain of what that happened years ago. She's the occasional psych patient who has. Issues, those are more funny in a bad way because the patient's really got his own mental health problems that things that might seem funny, not really all that funny. Do you do you often deal with a lot of psych patients or do you also consult with like a psychiatrist or a neurologist with uh, when it comes to that? Well, Kai's in a geriatric psych unit and the primary care doctor Kai's take turns covering the medical patients there come from outside. We get people from Peoria. Um, Quad Cities, OSF doctors with a cottage. So we do the medical care for the patients who come without a cottage doctor. So we're just keeping the geriatric psych unit at that cottage. Um, the only psych I end up doing is, um, there's a lot of, like, I'm not making sure schizophrenics, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be depression a lot, anxiety a lot, just because everybody else is around to do it. You've got, we want psychiatrists here in town and practice. That's Dr. Deco who's out at St. Mary's now. She was a cottage uh, psych doctor. We got Bridgeway with some people, but they're docs all telepsych and you know, to get in to see. So by default, the primary care guys are doing some stuff with, I'm almost used to the question, exactly or bipolar, things like that. It's really more out of my, you know, actually I can see some kind of mental health professional who needs to get a proper diagnosis and figure you out know, what to do there. But no health is really, really lacking in Illinois in general. Um, there is a psych residency at Methodist now, and hopefully they can start a psychiatrist to stay in Central Illinois um, because it really is a, a lack, even especially for, for child psychiatry. It was just hard to get a kid in to see anybody, in my understanding. Yeah, mental health is definitely a large issue for especially this generation. Apparently the... Yeah. Um, the mortality rate or the, what is it, life expectancy went down for the first time in a couple decades for the U.S. because of suicide. Uh, yeah. 
what do you think about that? Like what's contributing to the decline in mental health? Well, I think a lot of it right now is that in COVID, if you move on with that, people are just more depressed. They just can't do anything and there are issues with that. Um, I think, you know, the economy was a part of that also played an issue there. Um, you've got the substance abuse issue with, um, the overdoses, a lot of which are street drugs, you know, prescription drugs. I mean, it's, it's fed milk from China coming over that's extremely potent. It's, um, people are using injectable, injecting drugs that could be taken orally. And I think that's a big part of the issue too. They said that even though they thought the numbers might go down as far as, um, substitute deaths, they really haven't changed all that much. Speaking about, um, addictions what kinds of cases have you seen and are they usually with like the elderlies of course I mean, you take care of them but what um addictions do you see with the elderlies if any? i haven't seen a lot really but the big problem is right now you've got people on pain medication for a long time mm-hmm. because back in the 90s we were told that you know pain medicine is okay to take um it's it's the best thing to do very good your society actually came out back in the late 90s, early thousands saying Old people with arthritis and chronic pain. The truth is, anti-inflammatories like Motrin and Naprosyn and things like that are harmful. They can affect the kidneys, the liver, stomach, raise the blood pressure. They cannot say, you know, the same thing to give them are narcotics. So mm-hmm. they start prescribing narcotics to people. They've been on for a few years. It's hard to get them often. And yeah. that's been the, the problem there. Um, the idea is to get them weaned off them if you possibly can. You know, somebody, you know, if I got an 80-year-old who's taken a bad arthritis and barely move and they take some hydrocodone once or twice a day and get by with, that's probably okay. Mm-hmm. Keeping them mobile enough, they can do their thing. They keep out of the nursing home, perhaps. Um, of course, a lot of hospice patients are getting a lot of pain medication. That's just for comfort mm-hmm. and needed for that. Um, I, yeah, I can't recall my people who are overdosing offhand and they've seen one or two over the years. I think it's a most geriatric population is pretty judicious in their use of and they understand the the pitfalls. The bigger the bigger thing is if yeah, family members just steal prescriptions and things like that. So I've always had like a kind of a weird fascination with like um so I like a barber, who cuts a barber's hair? Who go what is a doc who what kind of doctor does a doctor see? So I was kinda of like asking I wanted to ask you like when you're a patient, what quali- like what kind of qualities do you look for in a physician that's going to treat you? Well, I want somebody who I know is up to date on things, who's personable. Uh, and my 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 doctor is um, one of the local guys here in the cottage group who, I guess, I mean, I'm his doctor, he's my doctor, kind of thing. Where, you know, we we share with coverage with each other, we know each other's styles of practice, we're similar, about the same age, same philosophies. Things like that I look for. Um, you know, there's some guys in town I know I wouldn't go to just because they need to do the doctors or not. Their personality is not the kind I would want to deal with. Um, there are, um, you know, I look for somebody who I think I'm going to be able to get along well with. Um, I'm not one of the doctors who's going to say, hey, here's what I want. Give me this. It's, I'm the patient. You're the doctor. Treat me as such. Don't expect me to, to diagnose or treat myself. That happens sometimes, you fall in that trap where um, everybody thinks, oh, you're the doctor, you know what you're doing. Well, I'm a patient in the hospital. I'm the patient. Don't expect me to give up my own care or 
diagnose myself. I've had some health problems over the years and I the hospital a few times with things and I just try to do what they tell me and not get involved in diagnosing and just um, try to be a good patient. Thank you. I was going support the doctors. A lot of doctors try to treat themselves and self-prescribe with themselves. That's a huge mistake because you can't be objective. You know, treating your family, you really can't be objective. You have to have your family, have their own, their own medical professionals and out of their health care also don't interfere. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening. No problem. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. And thanks once again to Dr. Strzok for agreeing to be interviewed by us and to Lois Love, Adam, and George for a great interview. The Knox Check-In is produced and edited by me with music by Kevin McLeod. On behalf of the Knox Health Studies Program, this is Jonah Rubin for the last time checking out.